I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be talking about the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, APAC, the most influential pro-Israel lobby in the United States today. Although it's a bipartisan organization, APAC has become increasingly associated with the Republican Party over the years, especially as a rift has begun to emerge within the Democratic Party over U.S.-Israel relations. Said rift was arguably accelerated during the Trump presidency thanks to the relationship between the former President of the United States and then-Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, as well as Trump's appearance at the 2016 APAC policy conference. This, in turn, has led APAC to receive some competition in the form of an alternate lobby known as J Street, which has been gaining more traction amongst Democrats as the years go by. So with all that in mind, we're going to be looking at the latest news about APAC, namely the announcement that it is launching a super PAC that will mark its official entry into direct spending on U.S. elections. Joining us to unravel that story and to offer a more general critical perspective on APAC is Grant F. Smith of the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy. Co-hosting the conversation with me is Free Palestine, of the West Bank Robbery Podcast. But before we get to the conversation, I'd like to tell you about one of my sponsors. If you're in the California area and looking for holistic therapy, then you can do no better than Alexander Yu, offering an all-embracing and welcoming approach. Alexander can help you navigate issues such as trauma, grief, PTSD, gender and LGBTIQ-related issues, marriage and relationship counseling, or even exploring spirituality, as Alexander is also a reverend who dialogues with people of all spiritual paths and persuasions. So again, if you live in California and you're looking for someone that can meet your therapy needs, consider Alexander Yu, Marriage and Family Therapist, California License Number 102886. Alexander can be reached by email at therapy at alexanderyoo.com or by calling or texting 
323-834-9828. Again, that's 323-834-9828. And with that out of the way, let's get right to the conversation with Grant F. Smith of the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy. Welcome to Parallax Views. Uh, Grant F. Smith, probably the foremost uh, researcher and author on the subject of the Israel lobby. We also have a, a co-host with us, uh, uh, the host of the West Bank Robbery Podcast. Uh, how's everyone doing today? I'm doing great. Hey, really well. Good to be on. Always so a pleasure to talk to Grant. So, Grant, this has been a long time coming because uh, we've been in contact on and off uh, over the past few years of me doing this podcast. And I guess for my listeners that are unfamiliar, uh, you work at the Institute um, for Research on Middle East Policy. And maybe you could describe how you got into this subject and covering the Israel lobby. Yeah, sure. Uh, for a long time, I've been involved in looking at the impact of lobbies on policymaking. And so back in the late 80s, early 90s, I participated in a Minnesota Citizens League investigation of public sector lobbying, basically taking tax dollars and recycling them through lobbying. And then I always had it in the back of my mind. So after 9-11, uh, after doing corporate research uh, for most of my career, I pivoted into policy research. And we really launched the research project on Capitol Hill in the Rayburn House office building in 2003 uh, to talk about the clean break plan and the origins of the idea to invade seven countries uh, in the Middle East. So we've been going strong ever since, doing books, conferences, webinars, and we keep focused on, you know, what's really driving US regional policy as opposed to kind of the PR campaign. And you guys have a webinar coming up, I think. Uh, this will be released on Tuesday probably, but you have a webinar coming up on Wednesday. Could you tell my listeners about that real quick? Yeah, sure. The uh, webinar is called APAC's New Political Action Committees, Implications for America. And we're pulling together two experts on uh, APAC to talk about what this means. Most of the reporting that you've seen, if you've looked into it at all, says, oh, this is APAC's first foray into electoral politics, which is complete BS. They have been involved in political action committees for decades. In fact, they distributed a little guide on how to form a political action committee so that donors in various states could group together uh, and band under innocuous names in order to sort of hide what they were doing, but uh, really uh, influence the outcome of political campaigns so that they would uh, really produce the best candidates for Israel. So we're going to go into that. We're going to look at the book Stealth Pacts, which has been around for a long time. But the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs is uh, Janet McMahon uh, follows Pacts, and she's going to talk about what this means. And we've also got Walter Hickson, who's a historian who's come out with a new book about APAC 
called Architects of Repression. And he's going to talk about what APAC really does. Again, as opposed to it's kind of bipartisan, we're here to talk about, you know, the U.S.-Israel relationship. He's going to get into the history of APAC from his new book. So thanks for that. Something that really surprised me about like this recent article you put out and this webinar that's coming up, I, I didn't think that anybody didn't think that APAC was constantly involved with PACs and like within U.S. elections. Like there's tons of different PACs and organizations and like voting groups that influence U.S. elections all the time. And they all have like fairly direct ties to APAC. And like, I didn't, I, I was shocked that it wasn't open. I assumed it was open with how, you know, open it is you know well you know they're uh yeah they're a 501c4 uh organization and for those who follow irs regs that means they can lobby on issues but they can't really get into dumping money into a candidate's lap or at least not legally so you know and if you look through the coverage it's just horrendous uh you know after 70 years on the sidelines says the times of israel APAC will now officially fundraise for politicians. Well, they published, to uh, your point, uh, all sorts of voter guides. They're saying this is the good candidate in this race. This is the bad one. They fund junkets for politicians to go to Israel so that, you know, a third of the members of Congress will have gone there um, in any given year. They are the number one destination. And so APAC funds all of these things. They raise money. Uh, and so, you know, they've never been on the sidelines. Uh, but again, to get back to the Times of Israel headlines, uh, after 70 years on the sideline, APAC will now officially fundraise for politicians. Well, you know, it's a fine line. Uh, they, back in the 80s, after helping form a lot of these political action committees, then sent out memos asking for certain donations to certain candidates and certain races. So, uh, to your point, yeah, there really wasn't too much difference between what they were doing and have been doing and just running the pack. So uh, I think it's a really interesting question of why they're forming one directly now. There are a lot of pressures on them uh, that have come to bear that uh, we can discuss if you want to. Absolutely. Yeah, that's actually a good uh, segue because I think when we emailed back and forth, I had sent you, uh, I believe the article article was from Politico, uh, and this is why I contacted you. There's this article that came out a few days ago, APAC launches Super PAC. Uh, the Israel-focused public affairs group is getting into direct spending on elections. So I sent you that. You sent me back some stuff on st- stealth PACs in the 80s. Uh, but then you said something very interesting. Uh, you said APAC may be doing this because they uh, don't want a repeat of the Jamal Bowman incident. Bowman incident. Uh, could you tell me what you meant by that and maybe explain to listeners uh, a little bit more uh, about why APAC may have been mad about that uh, congressional race? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jamal Bowman beat Elliot Engel. And the importance of that, that was just a catastrophic seismic event when uh, during the New York uh, Democratic primary, uh, he beat him by something like 15 points. And so it uh, caused a lot of angst because there wasn't, in the view of many, early enough intervention by Democratic Friends of Israel, which is a PAC that was pumping money into Elliot Engel's um, uh, campaign. And so they, they really lamented the fact that Bowman was able to sweep in there 
and oust him, and then he won handily in the general election. So, you know, that's the continued existence of the squad and Ilhan Omar, uh, the willingness of Thomas Massey to criticize APAC ads against him, saying, oh, there's this foreign intervention just because I don't want to fund Iron Dome, and even Rand Paul putting a hold on aid you know, a billion dollars in extra aid to Israel for its missile system, the Iron Dome. So, you know, one of the reasons, and it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons that APAC has to get into this game, it feels now, is that it has all the information, it follows these races closely, they've got far more donors, you know, they raise $100 million a year, uh, far more donors than uh, a lot of the other organizations, and yet they're on the sidelines when it comes to directly pumping money into the races. So that is certainly one factor that uh, is. Do you, do you think there's large. also not to interrupt you, but do you think there's yeah, also no. a little bit more uh, competition now when it comes to? I mean, because we've seen J Street sort of cater to the, the Democrats more, um, and people like Pelosi have spoken there. I think APAC sort of has um, this image that's, that, you know, they're more and more associated with Republicans. Uh, do you think that that's also playing into all of this? Yeah, it is. I mean, the idea, again, part of their brand has been so-called bipartisanship and bipartisanship seems to, you know, be really dead. In fact, this is kind of the remaining <laughs> forum where every year you'd have all these groups coming together, Democrat and Republican, for this giant event at the Washington Convention Center, uh, talking about bipartisan support for Israel. You know, it's been crumbling for years. The base of the Democratic Party uh, wants to put in planks about conditioning aid, and they didn't want to recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital, which led to a big kerfuffle and a floor vote at one of the Democratic conventions. So you're absolutely right. Um, you know, you've got J Street and J Street has a PAC. You've got Democratic Friends of Israel. They have a PAC. And then you have APAC, which everyone thinks is a PAC because of its name. And they have in the past gotten in so much trouble for even directing PACs these so-called stealth packs that now I think they feel, again, only one of many reasons, the need to jump in and become relevant by forming a super PAC in particular. I was gonna, I, I was gonna clarify something too. It, it is interesting, they're called APAC, but they're not a, a political action committee. P people should know that. I mean, technically they're not, but uh, you know, what are these stealth packs then? Um, if people are unfamiliar, uh, these stealth packs go back to the eighties, right? Yeah, so the stealth packs basically, you know, were innocuously named uh, political action committees that would raise money and direct them to candidates. And so, you know, uh, NORPAC and others would really be raising money to put into a candidate's uh, race. And, you know, the effectiveness is incredible because you know, they always uh, sort of suspected, the candidates would suspect that APAC had a hand in this. And they suspected that if they, you know, didn't write a letter with their policy, they might get into trouble and all of that. But, you know, it, it always had to be under the table because 
APAC got into trouble when a secret memo from Elizabeth Schreyer, who was an APAC official, was released showing that they were directing funds within these PACs, telling them who to fund and how much to give them, really trying to coordinate the PACs so that the dollars could flow most efficiently and so that they weren't overspending in one election and underspending in another. Well, they got into trouble with the Federal Elections Commission, which for uh, quite a few years was on them uh, and wanting them to clarify their role and perhaps even register as a PAC. And it just caused so many problems for them and wasn't wrapped up for basically decades. But PACs are extremely uh, effective. And as they noted, and as the article you sent me showed, you know, everyone's got one. And so they don't. And they're the biggest, uh, you know, lobby uh, on Congress on Capitol Hill. So they really want one now. So, so the rationale for creating this, it seems like the Jamal, Jamal Bowman election, that was a real upset. And like with a lot of these progressive upsets against like entrenched pro-Israel Democrats, particularly, it seems right. that most of the time, the way they get elected is that just the elected official, like the incumbent just feels so comfortable. They don't have to try like guys right. who have been in there for 15 and 20 years. Right. But like Jamal Bowman is not necessarily like, um, extremely pro-Palestinian or anything like that. Like you no. think in terms of, you know, percentages, I guess, but is, is this, is this fear and like this new campaign to try to get more involved? Is this grounded in any sort of like, is it grounded in a material reality that they are actually losing power in Congress and on like the national elections, or is it more of a, a fear of what might be? I think it's a, I think they see that the future is that they're going to, their candidates, you know, their ideological candidates are increasingly going to be challenged. I would just mention Ohio's 11th district mm -hmm. where you had Chantel Brown beating mm -hmm. Nina Turner, who was somewhat good on the issues yeah. um, by a 5% margin. And that, that sort of margin is terrifying to APAC. They had to pump a lot of money into that race because it looked, you know, like Nina Turner was going to win and there's going to be, you know, another member of the squad heading to Congress. So they see that sort of thing and that sort of thin margin as being, you know, basically unacceptable. So, um, yeah, they are, they are seeing a future and they do know that the Democratic base uh, is a real problem for them. Again, mm -hmm. the planks haven't stopped. The uh, protests haven't stopped. People pushing on the squad to actually do more hasn't stopped. And yet, you know, when you look at what APAC does, it gathers, you know, this hundred million dollars and their biggest program is sending citizen lobbyists onto Capitol Hill to extract promises from their elected officials in a very coordinated way every year. Mm -hmm. That is a gigantic program. And a lot of that uh, is funded by the American Israel Education Foundation. Mm -hmm. So, but they can't do that. They haven't been able to do that for two years. So it's, uh, you know, it's partly COVID. You know, they still try to organize Zoom meetings, but their biggest uh, most effective lobbying initiative, which is just gathering this mass of people to flood Capitol Hill mm -hmm. during the citizen lobbying day has been out of commission for two years. And it may well be out of commission for, you know, who knows how many more years. So 
they are scrambling to justify why exactly they need $100 million of donor contributions. And, and to be sure, their base of donors is pretty small. I only identified you know, a couple of thousand that are really uh, supporting the majority of their funding. And so those people are no doubt asking APAC, well, you know, we give you money to, to do the uh, you know, policy conference and citizen lobbying and turn out all these people and subsidize their travel. Well, that's not working. So what are you going to do now? So I would say the second major factor here is definitely COVID. It's very interesting. I hadn't considered the COVID angle and the way that's impacted lobbying. It's devastating. I mean, you know, it's devastating uh, from two perspectives. Number one, they don't come out, which means our conference that happens right before their conference is, <laughs> is also more difficult. And uh, again, Zoom doesn't cut it. I mean, they want to be in their member of Congress's office with like-minded people all saying the same thing during a couple of days where that's all you see across every single hall of Congress. And this, this, uh, this program, I mean, I don't know if you've watched the videos from the uh, Washington, Walter Washington Convention Center where they have, you know, the uh, sports uh, broadcasting level uh, sweeping, uh, you know, camera angles and all this stuff and uh, politicians genuflecting and all this, this roll call so they can show how many members are there. You know, so that hasn't been happening. And it may also be that the optics of that are so, you know, counterproductive at this point. I think more opponents to APAC and their programs show that video than they actually show. So it's, uh, they've got to pivot. And again, so this is just COVID is another reason, but I still, I think there's a bigger reason also. I, I wanted to get into that because in your yeah. latest uh, article for the, uh, Washington report on Middle East affairs, uh, you say that the UAE-Israel-Abraham Accord troubles reveal why. For listeners that don't know, what are the troubles that you're referring to there? Well, first of all, let's just talk about what the Abraham Accords are. So the Abraham Accords are APEC's number one legislative initiative, and they have had that at the top of their lobbying agenda for this year and previous years. And basically what it says is, we don't need to worry about Israel-Palestine peacemaking. What we really need to do is subsidize diplomatic recognition of Israel by other Arab countries that aren't really in, even in conflict with Israel and sort of transcend the whole Israel-Palestine problem. One of their major initiatives was the deal of the century where um, you know, the Trump administration tried to get the Palestinians to surrender um, portions of the West Bank and claims under UN resolutions, uh, and instead accept some very vague economic development programs partially funded by Gulf Arab states. Well, that collapsed, that didn't go anywhere. So then they pivoted to, well, UAE is gonna recognize Israel. Sudan's gonna recognize Israel. Morocco's gonna recognize Israel. Uh, and that's gonna solve the problem. But, uh, you know, this has been revealed as just kind of another way to fund Israel. For example, you, uh, Israel, Egypt, uh, Abraham Accord projects basically subsidize the export of Israeli natural gas to Egypt. You know, what does that have to do with peace? I mean, Egypt has already signed a peace treaty. But UAE was hugely important because 
the U United Arab Emirates was fed the expectation that APAC would be able to help deliver this sale of U.S. fighter jets, the F-35, to Israel um, with sort of a seamless, uh, you know, no opposition, get that into, um, you know, the UAE's Air Force. And, that and now, has, now the UAE has suspended those talks about the F-35s. Yeah, they've suspended those talks. They've gotten tired of hearing that they can't have Huawei infrastructure in their network. They've got tired of looking at the fact that Israel has the advanced version of the fighter and they don't. They've got kind of the junior fighter that who knows, maybe it can't turn as fast or whatever. They're sick of it. And instead, they just announced they're going to buy $18 billion of Rafael fighter jets and other aircraft from France in a giant package. And so this is devastating, of course, to Lockheed Martin, which had counted on this sale. No doubt there are a lot of people not getting bonuses this year because of that. Uh, and it's also, you know, those of us who follow these giant weapons sales, we all know that uh, the U.S. recently uh, sort of uh, beat France on a big submarine sale to Australia. So this is also being seen partly as pay payback. But anyway, the UAE was going to buy $23 billion worth of F-35 jets, and that's over. And now there's kind of an economic war going on between Israel uh, and UAE instead of hugs and kisses. Uh, the Israel's Environmental Protection Agency announced that it's going to block the movement of UAE oil from a lot in the, um, uh, in the port there through an existing pipeline up through Israel to customers in the Mediterranean. You know, this is not a sudden environmental concern. This is clearly political retaliation uh, for the collapse of Abraham Accord deals. And something nobody knows about is that also there was a giant $200 million Israeli salmon farming project in uh, Southwest Virginia. Is that this Project is Jonah? Yeah, Project Jonah. I've been following um, that for a while. I, I, I the read only one on the who's been writing articles about Project Jonah is me, unfortunately. It's a fascinating example of the interplay between international politics and county government. But anyway, Project Jonah started off as a tilapia farm in 2013. Uh, APAC was involved. They connected an Israeli uh, uh, provider of recirculating aquaculture technology called Aquamouth. Um, and the Virginia uh, groups that were looking for economic development in their region and basically sold them on the idea that they had to fund an Israeli technology startup in Southwest Virginia because the coal and other economics of tobacco have collapsed. But so Project Jonah was uh, until very recently going to get uh, a lot of funding, up to $25 million from U.S. government sources from the county level up to the federal level. And a lot of it depended on funding from the UAE, uh, but that's basically been broken off. The UAE uh, and this operation called Pure Salmon decided to buy a recirculating aquaculture outfit called Veolia, aqua, uh, RAS, and now Aquamoth's out of the picture. So this has collapsed too. The only people who are going to notice this because there's no news reporting on it are APAC, the Virginia Israel Advisory Board, and people who 
you know, try to insert and interlard congressional legislation with all sorts of goodies for Israel. This was a major deal that was going to be kind of a key focus on why APAC is so great for mm-hmm. America. And now it's just in tatters. So this is a major, major thing that's happening. It's a new development. UAE and Israel not able to make the Abraham Accords work. And I think there are a lot of reasons why they're not working. Yeah, and if I, if I could just add some stuff about Project Jonah, there was another fish farm within 90 miles of this place. Virginia is a, a proper latitude for fish farming. That's all you really need to know. But there was a cooperatively owned, environmentally friendly fish farm within like 90 miles of Project Jonah's prospective location. And right. you can only imagine what's going to happen when a bunch of you know money flows in and tries to shut people out of business. Um, well, yeah, and they were they were going to directly compete with them because they were mm-hmm. both tilapia operations. Yeah. And so you're right, they're at the same latitude. One was subsidized, the other was not subsidized. Um, and it looked like a real case of unfair competition based on purely political and ability to get state funding. So it, it look, the optics were always bad, but what happened next was worse. You know, Aquamouth, this Israeli company, which really doesn't have much experience, suddenly pivoted to salmon. You know, you can grow tilapia in a dirt hole in your backyard. They're some of the most hardy fish. They're farmed in, yeah, in open ponds. Now they suddenly said, no, we're going to farm Atlantic salmon, you know, up up in the southwest. Yeah. And Atlantic salmon are extremely (laughs) finicky. And uh, even the, the world leader in Atlantic salmon production, has had massive die-offs for just small alterations in water quality, mm-hmm. turbidity, all this stuff. And even Aquamouth, when it's tried to do this in the Negev desert, has had massive die-offs. So they don't have any real comparative advantage or even competency in this area. Yeah. And, and what really happened in Southwest Virginia is I was contacted by a lot of locals who read these stories And then they started asking their board of supervisors, why is it you guys are always in secret meetings uh, on Project Jonah and we're all dying of opioid overdoses and you're even planning on putting federal relief uh, from ARPA, the Recovery Act, into salmon farming and, and we can't even get any sort of treatment services. So they started facing a lot of a lot of backlash. But that's a really interesting case. And again, there's just no news on it. All you see if you look for Project Jonah is boosterism, local news reports talking about how great the economic development is going to be. So I compared it really to the deal of the century with Palestinians where, you know, you had Jared Kushner saying, oh, you know, forget about all that rights-based approach stuff. You guys are going to be much wealthier. You're going to be able to, you know, overcome all of this, you Palestinians, because you're going to have jobs and economic opportunity, blah, blah, blah. And they and didn't might accept I add it. a tunnel yeah. to Gaza. That was, yeah, oh, wow, plan. a tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. There was a tunnel. The maps that Kushner put out were insane. It was yeah. like, look, you're all going to have these tiny enclaves, but there's going to be tunnels and shit. That way, you know, right. Can I curse on this show? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you know, tunnels, that way you don't have to go on the Israeli roads, you can go underground, you're safe, you know, nobody can get you. (laughs) Right, Yeah. right. You can Um, be more Molochs, or Morlocks, like in the H.G. Wells novel. That is the end goal. Um, So, 
Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, if I have listeners that are unfamiliar uh, with the broader story that you're telling here with Project Jonah, could you describe uh, BIAB to them? Sure. The Virginia Israel Advisory Board is the only state agency in the entire country that um, is there to provide economic development opportunities to Israeli companies. And so uh, the Virginia Israel Advisory Board uh, was uh, started up um, by uh, uh, Eric Cantor and uh, some very large donors from local Jewish federations back in the mid nineties, but they only really became powerful relatively recently when they were a part of the governor's office and they started inviting in companies like Energix Renewable Resources, which has a lot of uh, power generation facilities in Israeli occupied territories. They brought in Sabra Hamas, which got a huge subsidized plant outside of Richmond Mm -hmm. and quickly knocked off some competitors with all their subsidies that were doing pretty well in the U.S. market to make Sabra the dominant brand. Um, and uh, Orange Safety Glass, which is That's a bullet- the big one. We, you yeah, got to bullet- talk about Orange Safety Glass. That's the they brought in Orange Safety story. Glass. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a quite a story. They brought in Orange Safety Glass to Greensville County, specifically Emporia. And this county really went all out to bring them power, gave them a shell building, which they later gave them practically for free, trained their workers, provided all these subsidies and loans and guarantees. This company turned around and defrauded the U.S. Army on uh, contracts for glass for um these, bulletproof uh, glass for Humvees. They were supposed to make bulletproof glass for Humvees with like secret Israeli technology. And right. what happened with that? Well, they, they found out that they were supposed to make it by the U.S. Army's recipe, not the secret Israeli recipe. And they got caught because a competitor complained that they, the glass they were delivering wasn't up to spec. So, so yeah, they got into trouble for that. They had, they had about $5 million in contracts clawed back, and they stopped being a tier one vendor to the Army. So uh, these days, they're using a lot of temps. They're not meeting any of their job creation requirements for the loans. And you know they really shouldn't be receiving any more loans at this point, but they're being subsidized, again, because of the power of VIAB, the Virginia Israel Advisory Board. So these are like state companies, except more like Israeli state companies that are really being propped up yeah. and trying you know, to get as much support as they can, even though they don't deliver on any of their performance agreements for job creation. So Viab, very important organization, very closely linked to APAC. They present their successes at APAC conferences, or at least they used to before they were shut down by COVID. And, you know, we're watching closely to see if this uh, model springs up elsewhere. I mean, there are chambers of commerce all over the country trying to do the same thing, but there's a real difference, and Viab executives say this. We sit in the Pocahontas building down by the Capitol. We have all the people in the room that we need to. We pull them in as fellow government agency heads, and we get stuff done. And boy, do they. And now a word from our sponsors. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. 
I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. Real quick, because I, 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 I wanted to get it before it slips my mind. Uh, you mentioned Jared Kushner, and you said uh, that he may have been like, uh, forget this whole rights-based approach thing. I was wondering if you could talk about this, I guess it's been called the human rights-centric approach to Israel-Palestine. Mm-hmm. Zaha Hassan and others at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace have been talking about it. And, you know, I, I think it's gone under a lot of people's radar, but I think it also has uh, certain parties uh, quite worried because uh, it could be a game changer. Yeah, Zaha Hassan over there did... She's been on the show, by the way, so... (laughs) Okay, well, then I don't need to tell you about her. Um, She's been doing just this incredible work about the integral nature of the rights-based approach. And her report really, I think, caused a lot of fears inside uh, the Israel-centric community because it really lays out sort of, you know, how... The settlement expansion has continued to grow, even as the U.S. and Israel, you know, pretend to engage in all sorts of peace initiatives um, and, you know, basically highlights the one sided approach that the U.S. has adopted. You know, people understand what it is to be crushed uh, if you're trying to advance a just cause. This is a human rights cause. And she has really, through her report as a human rights lawyer, along with their colleagues, put out information uh, in this research paper that has offered a position, a strong position for negotiation that really dispenses with all of the traps that Palestinians have have fallen into in Oslo and other uh, negotiations where they were always negotiating off the Israeli 
playbook and you know mm-hmm. usually found out too late that they really had already surrendered most of their negotiation positions before the negotiations even started. So, you know, she talks about UN resolutions. She talks about the Geneva Conventions. She talks about all these things that Americans really want their country to engage in. And she juxtaposes that with the disappearing uh, territory and the U.S. using its veto power to protect these land grabs and, you know, just how counterproductive the United States uh, and Israel have been to valid negotiations. So I I think her timelines and her uh, demand for a rights-based approach has made all the right people mad. You know, there are other Carnegie endowment uh, figures who've come Mm -hmm. out condemning it and given the same platform that she has for launching it. So it's obviously very contentious, but it's contentious it's also because- I, I just wanted to say really quick, not to interrupt you. Yeah. I mean, no. it, it's it, it's so hard for me when people say, oh, this this is just uh, pro-Palestinian propaganda that she's pushing because I mean, she co-wrote it with Daniel Levy. So, right. I, you know, he, he's a, a Jewish human rights guy. So, you know, yep. to me, it gets support uh, that this whole human rights centric approach has gotten support from all sides. It has. It has. And uh yeah, I mean, it's it's that's what makes it so dangerous. And, you know, that's why Aaron David Miller, who for a long time was working with Israel's lawyer, Dennis Ross, on, on absolutely destroying all of these negotiations previously, came out and said, no, no, this is terrible. You know, you can't. <laughs> her colleague condemned it. And, uh, you know, it's just but yeah. I think it could well gain traction from a lot of parties. Um, and that's what, again, to your point, that's what makes it doubly dangerous. Is there a way that you feel that like this rights, rights-based approach differs from previous attempts? Like, well, you know, you look at previous attempts. Sovereignty. Yeah, previous attempts always started off kind of based on the idea that uh, the UN resolutions and the original partition plan were, mm-hmm. you know, not even relevant anymore. Mm-hmm. They always assumed Israel or concessions by the Palestinians of various sorts. They never contemplated sovereignty or controlling borders or airspace or anything like that. Yeah, and there's and always so, been Palestinian groups of various sorts attempting to interrupt these peace processes for those exact reasons. Because yeah, if you look, if you read uh, Rashid Khaldi's Hundred Year War on Palestine, yeah, I've got it right pretty here. much sums it all up. And, you know, I disagree with some of his conclusions about the importance of the Israel lobby. I think I think it's a lot more important than he gives it credit for. And I also think some of his ideas that, you know, Israel can only push on a door that the U.S. wants opened or false. There are a lot of times when the Israelis have done things that even the worst of the worst in our own government didn't want. So Mm -hmm. um, but that's that's a key reference for how. I think he makes the point, you know, how underprepared and, uh, you know, outgunned the Palestinian side has always been Mm -hmm. by trying to accept some, you know, legitimacy for themselves, but having surrendered all sorts of negotiating points before things even began. Yeah, that's always been the focal point of, like, intra-Palestinian, like, political struggle is, like, like, you know, with Fatah, you know. PFLP yeah. or all these different groups. That's always been the debate. And it, it's always been the side that's willing to negotiate that gets the support of, you know, foreign powers. And that's just kind of 
It really does. It really does. But, you know, I I think there's enough recognition now that if there isn't a bona fide uh, solution to this, that it's not going to get any better. It's going to continue to be uh, just a major, major human rights blotch on everyone's record because it just keeps Mm -hmm. going on and on and on. And I think one of the things uh, Kali says is, you know, before doing this ever again, it's got to be clear that the U.S. and Israel have to negotiate on one side of the table and everybody else on the other, because the U.S. has been so co-opted into all of this that its positions and movements are indistinguishable. If Dennis Ross is continually communicating with the Israelis during the U.S. brokerage of these agreements and and trying to frame things so that they win, well, then the U.S. just has to be on the Israeli side of the table. Um, and it's, you know, it's never going to, it's yeah, never going to be a legitimate process. I don't understand how anybody could ever think that the U S could be a like genuinely honest peace broker in anywhere in the middle. East, yeah. I don't think there can be another so-called peace negotiation with that premise widely uh, accepted. I mean, maybe by the Washington post, but not anybody has been following this stuff. Yeah. So I, I know you said that, uh, there's been a lot of debate about APAC and, and people that you disagree with about the influence. There's a whole debate on the left about, you know, how influential is APAC. And I, I bring this up because I was I was talking to um, Professor Stephen Zunis recently, and I think yeah. you've actually been uh, on panels with him before. Yeah, I have. But uh, I, I like Stephen a lot, but and I, I get where he's coming from on this. I guess he worries when some people talk about APAC that there's almost this undercurrent of old right-wing tropes about, you know, Zog or, or things like the Dreyfus affair. At the same time, when I look at things like the Rosen scandal, the Stephen Rosen mm-hmm. scandal, the stuff with Jane Harmon, you know, I, as much as I worry about things like anti-Semitism, I think there is a real issue with APAC. And I'm wondering if you have any comment about how we can thread that needle and talk about APAC as a lobby um, and potentially, you know, arguably as, as a foreign agent that needs to register under FARA without sort of getting caught in anti-Semitic traps. Yeah, no, I, I think it's important not to get into those traps and tropes and canards. And I respect Stephen, as you say, I've been on some panels with him and I respect his work. I think he's done incredible work on the occupations that nobody pays attention to like western sahara and morocco i mean he's been on that forever before people even really knew about its relevancy um but you know at the same time there is i think there are two things that are happening number one there is a lot more what i would call legitimate uh sort of uh primary research based uh material that is being produced by respected people uh who are scholars first and maybe got into this not as their primary passion but to their great chagrin uh helping destroy their own careers um and i would include walton mearsheimer in that i would include paul findley uh the former congressman who wrote a book they dare speak out just about the overbearing nature of the lobby 
But yeah, there are also a lot of kooks out there who bring a lot of conspiracy mongering and make some statements and assumptions about individuals using the references you use that are counterproductive. I think most of the people, uh, certainly most of the people I work with now, particularly the younger generation, is very aware that bigotry and discrimination is a huge problem and anti-Jewish, anti-Muslim bigotry is a huge problem and it's not going away. And so they work, I think, really hard to analyze the people and the material and books and whatever that's being produced to see where it's coming from, who's producing it, Mm -hmm. what's their record, and are they using any of these references? Are they aligned with white nationalists? Are they coming out of this or that, you know, movement? And they've been very good at excluding those groups and saying, look, we're not here to promote bigotry. We're not here to produce anti-Jewish, anti-Muslim, whatever uh, discrimination. But we are going to look at the facts and we are going to look at, you know, the history, the operation. And I think the best thing that's happened is, you know, when APAC comes out uh, with an ad on Facebook against Betty McCollum or another figure, they call it out and they say that is, in fact, discriminatory. You're engaging in the same thing that you accuse others of and claiming that it's, you know, combating anti-Semitism. I think Betty McCollum actually called out the group as a hate group for some of the ways they were attacking her. uh, Well, go go on. I, as a Palestinian guy, as a Palestinian guy, like I'm always, you know, extremely, extremely careful about these sorts of things. Cause like, you know, you can get shut down instant, like even just rightfully, you know, advocating for the Palestinian cause will get you called anti-Semitic without, any cause you know like it's extremely dangerous to be a palestinian there's groups like uh the canary mission and all that kind of stuff that will just shut you down keep you out of palestine um but as far as like the strength of the israel lobby and everything i see it more as like a uh, ideological uh conditioning apparatus like partly from the u.s and partly from israel but i'd say a, a genuinely like american project to enforce support for israel like the unsinkable aircraft carrier in the middle east you know like it's uh, to maintain an American presence there and to maintain American support. And they've shifted over the years, like, you know, they're leaning more towards the evangelicals now and all that kind of stuff. They're looking for support where they can get it to continue to have like American forward operating bases in the Middle East. That, that's actually another thing I wanted to get into with Grant before we wrap here is, uh, yeah. you know, when I brought up that I was having you on, one of my listeners said, well, isn't APAC just a, a, a domestic uh, phenomena? Whereas I think you would argue, no, they, they should register under FERA. And I, I mentioned the Stephen Rosen scandal. I think mm-hmm. that's an example of why I think mm-hmm. uh, the issues the Justice Department has had with APAC over the years uh, are worth looking into. Uh, could you cover some of that? Why is this something that you know should be registered under FERA in your view? Yeah, I think it should be registered under FERA basically because it's engaged in all of the activities that FARA covers, you know, there are a lot of older laws on the books, like the Espionage Act and and that sort of thing from World War I that are actually terrible laws and horribly out of date. Uh, The Foreign Agents Registration Act, though, however, came out in the late 30s. And the whole idea was, if you're going to be pretending to be 
an American interest group, but you're bringing in foreign money and you're in constant communication with a foreign government to promote that, then you need to file a declaration with the Justice Department outlining how much you're spending and what your relationships are. The reason I think Farah applies to APAC is that it was part of an umbrella group that in 1962 mm -hmm. was ordered to register. Why? Because they brought in millions of dollars from the Israel-based Jewish agency and pumped it into lobbying Congress and producing propaganda materials to get arms and aid to Israel. There was just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. We got all that information declassified in 2012 from the Senate investigation that occurred. We put it all online. And the, the revelation is clear. I mean, the umbrella group, which included APEC as its lobbying division, was engaged in, as a foreign agent. They were receiving funding to do their work. <clears throat> they were caught out. They were ordered to register. And what happened was they kind of folded the umbrella group and APAC emerged six months later and it incorporated itself and started applying for tax exempt status and just continued the operation. So my argument is they were ordered to register and should continue registering. Now they might make the argument today, well, we're 100% domestically funded, uh, but that's only part of it. I mean, if you look it's very blatant. The head of APEC was meeting with the new Israeli prime minister and briefing him before he went to talk to Biden. Mm -hmm. uh, there are ongoing Zoom meetings and you see the snapshots on Twitter. Oh, APEC is meeting with, you know, their uh, counterparts in Israel to talk about policy. There is a constant uh, communication of this sort that uh, is covered by Farah. So I would, I, I continue to argue that because of the way it was set up and because of the way it operates, that it really should uh, be registering as a foreign agent. Or, you know, they could disband and shed kind of this history that's been, I would say, dogging them since 1962. And some other organization might want to come into play that really is uh, dedicated to forming uh, better relations with the Middle East and not serving as a stealth lobby. So, you know, all of my assertions on that are based on research. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of lousy research out there. I'm reading a book right now by an alleged expert on Iran who, who says, you know, the U.S. helped Israel create nuclear weapons. Uh, the record's clear that through the Kennedy administration, the U.S. was fighting Israel going nuclear, didn't want it to happen, but still lost materials, lost designs, lost all sorts of uh, information to the Israelis who prevailed in creating a, a bomb and a nuclear capability the U.S. didn't want. So there's a lot of mythology out there that doesn't really stand up to the record. Mm -hmm. And I think it is perfectly legitimate to bring that record out and, and call APAC on it constantly. Since I mentioned the whole Stephen Rosen scandal, and I, am I putting too much weight on that? I know it was like many years ago, but that's how I first became familiar with your work. Uh, do you have any comments on that whole affair? And um, sure. you know, does it matter? Yeah, go on. Well, my comment is that there's been a thread of clandestine operations occurring within APAC for a very long time. Thomas Dine was a former director of APAC 
who uh, in the midst of some U.S. negotiations over a missile sale that Israel didn't want, obtained classified information and leaked it so that he could uh, impact that sale. And it was investigated by the State Department and referred as a potential espionage case. This occurred, you know, back in 1975. So there's that. Then there is the case of the U.S.-Israel Free Trade Agreement, America's first free trade agreement, in which the International Trade Commission gathered together all sorts of proprietary corporate information by companies mainly who were against having a free trade deal with Israel. And APAC obtained that secret report, circulated it, sent it to Israel, and was able to define their negotiating position much better in 1985 passed an agreement that was severely disadvantageous to U.S. companies that didn't want it. Uh, so there's that. Uh, that. There was an FBI investigation, and they just let it go after they said, you know, this leads straight to the Israeli embassy, and there's a diplomatic immunity problem here, so we're not going to go after it. Then you have Steve Rosen and, uh, or, uh, uh, Rosen and Weissman trying to use purloined Department of Defense information to pivot the U.S. to attack Iran based on the idea that the Iranians were doing all sorts of things in Iraq and, you know, leak that proprietary information to the Washington Post, who was on mm -hmm. the line. So you had one guy convicted of espionage, Larry Franklin, didn't go to jail, but the two APAC officials, you know, managed to skate. So you know, I raised that. I wrote a lot of articles about it, not because it was unique, but because it was so common in this organization. And even Steve Rosen himself in a later defamation suit against APAC said, this is common practice. This is what we do. And that is the real difference. I mean, look at, you can look at a lot of lobbying groups like the NRA, AARP, you know, first of all, you know, they don't do that sort of thing. And they really don't have the power and influence of APAC. APAC, you know, hit uh, six point, well, not APAC, but the Israel ecosystem that I write about in my book, Big Israel, of subsidies, political action, advocacy, education, hit $6.2 billion last year. And the thing people have to be aware of is people who donate to things like that, Israel advocacy, don't stop at nonprofits. Blackbaud, which is a big nonprofit consulting and processing firm, has said it's more or less the same giving pattern, politics, charity. So I would not find it to be out of question that there's another $6 billion going into politics uh, that is related to this effort. And that's why we have such an such a imbalance and dedication to Israeli interests in our politics. There's um, just two more things I want to hit on if you have the time. Um, yeah. The, the first is, do, do you think there's a lot of building, I would say, consternation in D.C. over a lot of the things involving APAC. And I ask this because, you know, when we look at cases like the, the Jonathan Pollard case, it's very interesting. You see that there are uh, figures like, I think even Cheney and Rumsfeld were like, this man shouldn't be uh, ever getting out of prison. And I, I think there's a lot of under the surface sort of subterranean 
just annoyance with uh, what APAC and, and various other groups have done over the decades. Yeah, um, I wouldn't necessarily say that that particular instance was any more, uh, you know, the national security state wasn't really singling Pollard out. They feel the same way about Julian Assange. You know, they would do to- This is true. Yeah, they would have done to Assange what they did to Pollard if only they could, and they probably will. So a lot of that was just angst over national security state breaches more than, you know, oh, the Israelis got us again. But, you know, there, there is the sentiment you describe in the case uh, of Zbigniew Brzezinski. We finally, after years, managed to ask him, what do you feel about the diversion of enough bomb making material from New Mech and Pennsylvania to Israel to, to put together a dozen bombs? And his response was, well, what did you expect us to do? Ask him to give it back? You know, that was his response. And he clearly was flustered. But yeah, the transgressions that Israel is able to commit against, you know, the national security state and get away with it uh, have, you know, they're pretty well known. And a lot of people well, don't I, like I recall, it. not to interrupt you, but I, I recall yeah. like Congressional Quarterly and, and other publications in D.C. covering like the Jane Harmon stuff and so yeah. I, I've always thought that there may be something going on there where there, there is annoyance with this kind of stuff. And Brzezinski, I'm glad you mentioned him because people forget uh, in later life, he ended up being one of the biggest supporters of uh, Mersheimer and Walt's book. Yeah. Yeah. So to your point, yeah, there was some some good reporting on Jane Harmon waddling into the APAC case. And, uh, you know, Jeffrey Stein, who wrote some of those articles for The Washington Post, he's He's clear-eyed about this stuff, and he's funny, too. He said, you know, Jane Harmon challenged him to a competition, uh, a, a foot race to resolve this, and he said, yeah, let's race from Capitol Hill to APAC and see who gets there first. You know, very funny guy, good platforms, but nobody has the staying power to do that. And on the Rosen and Weissman espionage case, the entire sort of First Amendment media protection infrastructure came out in their favor and really filed a lot of amicus briefs with the judge to, to, to take out that case, claiming they were like acting like journalists, which they clearly weren't. So uh, yeah, there's not, there's, I don't think there's enough to matter um, in terms of there's, again, there's so much at stake and so few perches other than alternative media to talk about this stuff that I don't see this groundswell of change. It's only happening, you know, at the base level. You can still have all sorts of, you know, extreme politics uh, in Israel's favor because that infrastructure is intact. Yeah, and I, I guess I should add, I mean, I guess even with things like the Justice Department trying to get APAC registered as a, a foreign agent, ultimately, they haven't been able to do that, which sort of goes with your point. Yeah. And they were, if you look at the record, the documentary record we released, you know, got declassified and released in 2012, it's clear the pressure was enormous. It was unbelievable. And it came from, you know, the best friend of the Justice Department, the AG was suddenly there mm -hmm. making demands. It was, the lobbying, internal lobbying was so incredible. The war chest that was assembled against that accountability measure was insurmountable for the Justice Department. And mm -hmm. 
you know, for those of us who have met with the Justice Department, FARA division, they're a very weak agency. They're not going to be able to ever do anything uh, in terms of enforcing FARA that isn't, you know, against Iran or Russia or some designated enemy. They're, they're not at all even-handed, you know. Look at all of their uh, labeling of foreign media in YouTube, yeah. you know, press TV, Al Jazeera, all this stuff. It's a very political organization. I've, I've really, uh, and I've dealt with these people, I've met with them, we've brought IRMEP contingents to sit down at justice. They're very cagey. They don't like receiving documents. They'll tell you, hey, there's nothing privileged or internal in that thing you're trying to pass me, is there? Very, very cautious, cautious people. So, the thing that gets me, are you familiar with Ben Freeman by any chance? Uh, um, Center for International Policy, he does the, uh, he's the director of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative. And a lot of the yeah, stuff he so. covers is uh, the Turkish lobby, the Saudi lobby. But when I asked him, I'm like, which, which of these lobbies uh, that should register under FARA, in his, in his opinion, which one's the most powerful? And he had the answer immediately. He said APAC. Um, <laughs> so what, what, put, what puts APAC in a different category, say, than, you know, Turkish lobbying efforts or, or Saudi lobbying efforts? Well, you know, Saudi lobbying efforts, they, they have two advantages. Number one, they, when they have to do some direct lobbying, they hire the best DC lobbying firms, and then they all declare themselves as foreign agents. So, you know, you can, you can actually see a lot of the stuff they're doing uh, in Justice Department filings. And, but the other advantage they have is their entire economy is a lobby. I mean, because of what they produce and the long U.S. relationship, um, you know, between uh, uh, the Saudis and, and U.S. energy companies and engineering companies, they barely uh, need to lift a finger to get all sorts of people uh, really advocating for them. And then again, it's because of their economy and their purchasing power and the criticality of oil and all of the engineering firms in the U.S. that have really gotten probably undue access to all of those projects. So I think the fact that their economy is, is a lobby and the fact that they hire a lot of, a lot of lobbying shops, you know, they've, they've already kind of complied um, not to say that their influence isn't undue or negative. Obviously, the whole Khashoggi affair and the inability to hold, uh, you know, <laughs> the crown prince accountable for his murder really reviews or uh, it reveals, you know, what can be gotten away with there. So, but, you know, the problem is others who've commented that APEC managed to completely write itself out of the lobbying junket laws that were recently passed by claiming that uh, American Israel Education Fund, which again, brings one in three members of Congress every year to Israel is educational and it's not lobbying. You know, that sort of thing really, I, I think is growing. It, it's got a lot of observers. It's got a lot of critics and they just see all these carve outs. And I think, I think, you know, even uh, recently, I think, uh, um, who was it who, who, you know, some, some people who you wouldn't expect to be calling for APAC to register as an Israeli foreign agent are now seeing the logic of it. Mm -hmm. 
you've touched on a lot of stuff there that I think might explain APAC's recent pivot, like mm-hmm. uh, the Abraham Accords um, right. and the UAE, Saudi, every, the, all these like Arab petro states and American puppets normalized relations with Israel is that Israel's not as important anymore in the Middle East. The U.S. used to have a very hostile group of countries there uh, to American interests. You know, Syria has been, you know, bombed to hell. Iraq's been bombed to hell. You know, uh, Gaddafi, all of that. And with Saudi Arabia and the UAE and, like, the Gulf states coming together with Israel, what, why do we need Israel? We've got, we've got the UAE, we've got Saudi Arabia. They've got the same war plans. Israel just seems to be there to create further destabilization in the region to prevent some coalescing. And that, that is extremely valuable to American interests, I would think. But Israel is no longer the unsinkable aircraft carrier. They can't even be used as an aircraft carrier. You know, like they couldn't go into Iraq. They couldn't, you know, because that would inflame the whole Middle East. Like they, uh, they're, they're losing a lot of power due to their success, I think, with their uh, yeah. the Abraham Accords. Yeah, the Abraham Accords, I think, um, represents an effort to be relevant. And when you look at the legislation that they've been passing and then the fact that they can lobby for arms sales and adjustments in U.S. recognition of this or that territory, like Western Sahara, uh, to me, it looks like they're trying to consolidate lobbying. I mean, they've been able to keep UAE and Saudi foreign direct investment out of the U.S. And now what seems to be the or at least it was, the proposition was, hey, you can do direct investments in the U.S. We're not going to oppose you anymore like we did with the DP world. Dubai ports wanted to buy all these ports up and down the East Coast, and Chuck Schumer and some of the worst of the worst neocons said, well, we're not going to let the mullah dollar trafficking, laundering UAE into the U.S. market. Now what they're saying is, yeah, we'll let you into the U.S. market. We'll let you do FDI. And then in exchange you know, you need to do some things for us. So I really see it as an attempted consolidation and kind of taking the lead in Middle East lobbying Mm -hmm. and converting it into U.S. policy sort of in the way that uh, APAC says, we don't lobby for Israel, we lobby for the U.S.-Israel relationship. They can say, we don't lobby for UAE, we lobby for the Abraham Accords. Mm -hmm. So I see, yeah, their relevancy is being challenged and so they're really trying to i would say climb the ladder the relevancy ladder and become something they've never been that's really but it's a brilliant it's a brilliant move um yeah. west asian just, co-prosperity sphere or what there you go <laughs> yeah and and maintain that alliance against iran yeah. which yeah. you know they get apparently very uh, squeamish when uae sends an intelligence chief over to iran to talk mm-hmm. things out because maintaining the simmering of the entire, you know, uh, Iran versus the Middle East uh, sort of narrative that they have is, is very important. So Absolutely. I, I would somewhat, though, again, you, you already discounted it, disagree that Israel has ever been an unsinkable aircraft carrier. Back in the 1980s, they used to make that argument. And they even, APAC even put out a bunch of position papers on hey, you know, we can provide all of these logistics services and you can pre-position weapons here and we've got a bunch of hospital beds for when you come over here and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, get shot up. But then they dropped it. And I think it's because of some of the things, reality intervening, 
You know, they had to be restrained from firing back when Saddam was shooting scuds their way. They couldn't be part of this grand alliance on the indefensible invasion of Iraq and, you know, all sorts of uh, military adventures. They would love to. (laughs) Very capable, probably the most capable, but they've been restrained because of the dynamics in the region. Mm -hmm. So it's very, uh, I think, I think the fact that the Abraham Accords appear to be unwinding is a huge blow to their bid for relevancy as, you know, the U.S. begins fear-mongering over China even more t- intensely, mm-hmm. China and Russia. And China owns the port of Haifa, so. There you go. Yeah, yeah the, US, the U.S. has been really upset by the Israeli-Chinese relationship, just like it was upset with the UAE-China-Huawei relations, but to be you know, fair, the US, I'm also upset. <laughs> yeah, the U.S. influence in the region has been on the decline. We've spent all these trillions of dollars, wasted them. This incredible human rights and uh, disaster, this refugee crisis. I, I remember, I hate to say this, but uh, Chashogi was here reporting, and he asked at a forum uh, about the U.S. role in the region that uh, John Mearsheimer was on the panel and Khashoggi asked him, you know, what more can the U.S. do in the region to, you know, make it a better place? And, and Mearsheimer said, we have been the problem in the Middle East. We've yeah. destroyed the place. We've, you know, created millions of refugees and almost irreparably bombed the infrastructure of every, you know, targeted country there. We're the problem. We're not mm-hmm. the solution. And then you know, I again, I hate it that it was Chashoji who asked the question, but Mirshammer was so right. I mean, we have been the problem and we're rightfully being perceived as a problem uh, in that region as we slowly pivot to, you know, new opportunities for mayhem. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that it's almost universally on the ground. Every single person in the Middle East understands this unless they're right. literally of royal blood, you know. Right. Uh, and- but I've also we've also striven this year. I think JJ's, uh, you know, making some good points about, well, what is the big picture? We published a book called Imperialism and War, The History Americans Need to Own this year, because one of the reasons that this U.S.-Israeli relationship has proceeded so far is we speak the same language, colonialism, we speak the same language of settler colonialism, we, you know, the chosen people, manifest destiny. It's been relatively uh, easy for Israel to uh, come into the U.S. and seek it as the new imperial power for you know supporting them because we share so many of the same narratives which people these days just are utterly utterly reviewing and challenging as we try to proceed and uh it's it's not good obviously to have that legacy last thing because uh i I know i kept you over time but uh i recently had alan lever on from the uh the arkansas times and we were talking about uh, his whole issue with having to sign a pledge uh, to yeah. say, I will, I will be, uh, I will not support BDS. And he still won't sign it. Um, he's right. like, we're from Arkansas. We're not going to take orders <laughs> from Tel Aviv. I mean, that's, right. that was his exact words. And uh, I know Abby Martin and other people have had this issue too. Uh, yep. Do you think that these attempts to get laws passed that are basically anti-boycott laws, um, what do you think the future of that is? Do you think it's going to be uh, successful. And, and I think APAC is involved in all of this as well. 
Yeah, APAC's very heavily involved in this and they haven't made it a secret. Uh, you know, these are laws, something like 35 uh, states or more have anti-BDS laws that strike at this uh, First Amendment right. Alan Leverett, you know, again, he's the last person who should be ups upset, I would think, because again, you know, not the last person to be upset, but he's very clear he's not in the BDS movement. The last thing he would do is what I meant to say is boycott Israel. And yet here he is in this untenable position that in order to receive ads, he's got to sign a pledge. Um, you know, he, think, he's different. Leverett's different than a lot of these cases, because like you said, he isn't really anti-Israel. He's just like, no, you're not going to tell me what to do. We're not a paper right. that's about uh, Israel, you know? That's what I meant to say. He's not an obvious ideologue. He's not in the, but here's the problem. I mean, they came very close, I would say, uh, a couple of years ago to passing this at the national level, the Israel yeah, Anti-Boycott Act federally. And that would have really made uh, any sort of uh, protest activity or, you know, this affiliation with the Palestinian BDS movement impossible. And they just couldn't get it out of committee. And, you know, we've, in one of our conferences at the National Press Club, had some excellent reasons why they couldn't get it out of, of, uh, out of committee. And it's really because it's so sweeping. It's so sweeping that even people highly compromised and receiving funding uh, from all of these stealth packs just couldn't abide by it. They just basically said, this is too much. It's got too many holes. You had the head of APAC, you had the head of the ADL, you had the head of all of these organizations and agencies pressuring and pressuring and pressuring them to pass it. And they just said, no, we, we cannot pass this. So uh, my fear though is again, another reason, there's a lot of unfinished business that has not uh, taken place yet. And some of that unfinished business again is passing something like this uh, Israel Anti-Boycott Act and the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act at the federal level which are really designed to clamp down on protests on campuses, defund universities. Well, a lot of it, it's defining some criticism of Israel as just being inherently anti-Semitic. Right, yeah. right, right, it's exactly. A generational goal, you know. Extremely sweeping stuff. Um, so I think part of the reason for APAC <coughs> to be uh, redoubling its efforts to become influential is to fit, get this unfinished business through. And I, I see, I could see them doing that. I could see them creating the conditions for U.S. recognition of Israeli sovereignty over the West Bank. I could see that happening. That's unfinished business. They were on the verge of getting that from Trump. You know, all of the things that this uh, have been ratcheted forward, the uh, Jerusalem recognizes the capital, you know, Israeli sovereignty over parts of uh, Syria, the Golan, while we yeah. harp on and on about Russia and Ukraine. In Crimea, you know, it's uh, APAC has a lot of things that they have not unbelievably gotten their way on. And I think they're really uh, focused on getting that done uh, in the, you know, certainly next decade. So, you know, the Jerusalem uh, Embassy Act started in 1995 with APAC and the Moral Majority and all sorts of others putting that together and getting it passed while 
the legendary Bob Dole was running for president and he was one of the key constituents. You know, this stuff takes a long time. It takes a really long time to get such bad policies, such, you know, policies that go against international law passed. But APAC, you know, if you look at what they've been working on, it tends to become the uh, next U.S. law and the next U.S. policy. So I'm very uh, cautious in thinking that this redoubling of influence effort that's going on is certainly going to be aimed at getting some of this unfinished business done. I think it'll inevitably be self-defeating. Like this Arkansas guy, he, he, he reminds me a lot of these like civil war generals who went down to the South and ended up becoming abolitionists 15 minutes after they had to interact with the aristocrats. Like, I feel like most yeah. Americans, once they meet a Palestinian like me, I don't, you know, like they, they inevitably come on the right side of the issue and, and well, they have to go to Israel. They, if they see yeah, any you other t- bullshit, they, they, typical, yeah. typical businessman is not Ben. It's not Jerry. It's not that guy. Your typical yeah. businessman has one obligation. That's to maximize shareholder value. Yeah, and most of them are cowards when it comes to taking a stand. So, you know, I always find it amazing that we could all rattle off, you know, Sheldon Adelson and the Pritzkers and all these people who are billionaires supporting Israel and they're almost none supporting the other side or justice even. There's just nobody there. So I, I have well, even, no even Not to interrupt you, but even, uh, yeah. even getting this bill passed, uh, the, the anti-Islamophobia bill, there, there was yeah. so much uh, just, I mean, I would say just vile rhetoric launched at people like Omar. You know, it's just, it's, it's bizarre to me. Um, uh, we have all this Islamophobia, but this, the second you question APAC, you're basically called an anti-Semite. You know, it's imperial projection. It's, it's projection. It's the best strategy, really. You know, just throw throw your weaknesses on the other side and just well, make them deal I, with them. Yeah, and I think I think people are seeing it for what it is. I mean, it it really doesn't work anymore. It, you know, Ilhan Omar is still there. Betty McCollum's still there. They're popular. Um, they've, they've called this stuff out. Yeah. And, and again, we see APAC redoubling its ability, at least capability to fight back against that sort of thing. So I think, you know, it's, uh, it's becoming obvious and that, that these laws really don't have anything to do with anti-Semitism. They're much more to do with shutting down any sort of relevant pushback. But, you know, you have to say there's, there's not always uh, justice on the other side either. You know, people have gotten beat up at rallies for wearing a kippa and bringing an Israeli flag. I mean, stuff happens that is uh, really regrettable in this space because the passions are extremely high. And, you know, unfortunately, not everybody's enlightened. Not everybody's able to see um, that this is an ideological battle and it should be fought on the merits. It should be fought on a rights-based mm-hmm. approach. And so transgressions are present on all sides. But, you know, these, these efforts to sort of weaponize it and cram it through, um, you know, I, I, think, I think it's really, uh, really uh, interesting that they have been only successful at statehouse level to this point. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, hey, um, Grant, I want to thank you again for coming on. Was there anything you wanted to add? Uh, yeah, Grant. Uh, I was wondering how people get involved with this sort of thing and if you know any state-level groups or any, any organizations uh, that you would recommend. You know I do. Uh, of course. You know, 
the group that I'm most impressed with right now, <clears throat> there's, there's one that used to be called uh, Freedom to Boycott, but now it's the Virginia Israel, or excuse me, the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights. Mm -hmm. Did it really you know, people, Yeah, people, the coalition of JVP and various- Jewish uh, for Peace, yeah. Yeah, bunch of groups uh, that have come together, you know, to fight back this stuff. Virginia incredibly does not have an anti-BDS law. Yeah, it's shocking. A lot of it almost other. passed. It was very close. Yeah, it's it's just incredible that they managed to do that. But they're also pushing back. Look at their website, vchr.org, mm -hmm. pushing back in a fair and open way on a lot of these prerogatives while demanding that companies that are involved in settlements not get these plum contracts and all of that. There's also a group called Del Nato, uh, another state group in Delaware. I think they might've rebranded. Minnesota groups, Break the Bonds. I think, you know, there's a real opportunity at the state level for people who wanna take a coalition-based human rights approach and not mm -hmm. get too, uh, you know, I would say uh, parochial, well, not parochial, but two centered in one small organization can join and meet. Um, the thing that they do that's different is they're meeting every two weeks. They're talking strategy. They're, they have programs. They have people who are experienced and they're doing great work. So I would, I would love to see more states. Texas Coalition for Human Rights just sprang up. Nice, um, beautiful, love to hear it. Yeah, yeah. So I think these things are, are spreading People really want to have more of an impact. They want doable, small doable things that they can measure. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to do that at uh, the congressional level, uh, given how entrenched APAC is. But Absolutely. it's a lot easier to do it in a state house or even a county board of supervisors mm -hmm. meeting. So, Absolutely. and there's all sorts of things going on that have a direct impact on this issue. So I would say look for a state organization that's doing something relevant. Yeah, and I'd also recommend the uh, Palestinian youth movement. If you got any Palestinian listeners out there, sup? Uh, or just you know, give them your money as well as all these groups. Give them all your money. Like students for justice in Palestine type groups. Is that what you're talking uh, about? They're good, but uh, it's a it's a newer group, the Palestinian youth movement. It's uh, they've got they've got chapters all over the country at this point. They're going pretty big. I'm very impressed with their work. They okay. were uh, at the head of a lot of the protests during the recent war. I think what you want to look for is a group that has a rights-based approach that mm -hmm. has anti-bigotry and discrimination type, you know, Absolutely. principles that wants to hold politicians to account, that's willing mm -hmm. to meet, that's willing to go to Capitol Hill and lobby, mm -hmm. even though unless you're bringing a bag of money, it's pretty tough. I mean, in Virginia, they have unlimited campaign contributions from any source. I mean, you know, yes. and typically Largest these groups, history, this last yeah, these groups, these groups do not have that sort of economic power. So no, no, no. they've got to they've got to take the high road and show in every way that justice is on their side. Mm -hmm. uh, and where can people find you? Uh, go to IRMEP. Job, JG, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Go to IRMEP.org. Uh, go to IsraelLobbyCon.org for our webinars and our annual meeting at the National Press Club. You know, if you want to come in by Zoom, we're doing that this year. Uh, we're going to do it somehow. We've got too many great speakers. Anana Shrawi is Gideon coming. Levy. Gideon yeah. Levy's coming. Yeah. Uh, Roger Waters is coming. I mean, just some really, yeah, really great people. And uh, there are some we haven't even announced yet. Here, I'm going to make a newsmaker on. No, I can't do that. But 
we're going to have some more announcements in the next two months. So people, I, you know. I, I wanted to add to that real quick. Um, for both uh, IRMEP and uh, the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs, you guys have done a lot for this show, just having those guests at the various conferences. I mean, I, I, I was turned on to Hassan's work by you guys, uh, Richard oh, Falk. A lot of yeah. a lot of the uh, conference speakers you guys have had, I ended up having them on my show because I, I heard them with you guys first. So you're doing a lot of good work educating the public. Yeah, that's great. And you know, we love being, we love having our stuff cannibalized. Like I'm supposed to be talking about this stuff on Wednesday, and here you just you just pillaged my entire rap here, and that's good. Big, that's yeah, what we're trying to do. Correct, uh, you know, I need to bump. <laughs> It's, it's a big help. I appreciate it. Yeah. So we should have a sign on our website that says poach our speakers. Cause that's what we want. We want them. We want them to get out there and they've, they've done incredible work. And in, in some cases, you know, Gideon Levy told us, he's like, yeah, I started getting all this feedback of this video translated into Arabic and all these languages. And I was this star and yet I didn't know where it was coming from. <laughs> and it was because of one speech he did in 2015 or something at our conference. So it's making a difference. It really is. And I love to hear that. Well, thank yeah, you again, Grant F. Smith, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you. And then Free Palestine, your podcast. Oh, uh, you know, it's a little it's a little project. We're running out of my garage uh, in the basement, 50 feet underground of Langley, Virginia's uh, most notable establishment. Uh, we cover a lot of different things, mainly focus on Palestine. We do a lot of cultural media work, just shit talk movies and that kind of stuff. But we get some pretty serious guests on um, things of this caliber uh, we attempt. Uh, we recently got James Dahl on of the Warner fan to talk about Ethiopia. And I think that was a pretty controversial episode um, amongst the left or perspective on Ethiopia. Uh, but I think it's correct. Um, and please get mad at me and then also defend me online because that's how you create buzz. You're trying to learn from Elvis, you know? Uh, and thanks for having me on. It, this, this was a great opportunity. I had a lot of fun. Um, Grant's so cool. I love that guy. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Grant F. Smith of the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy and thanks to Free Palestine of the West Bank Robbery Podcast for co-hosting this edition of the program with me. Uh, of course, I highly recommend you check out both the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy, Grant's work there, and the aforementioned West Bank Robbery Podcast. As always, if you support the work I do here at Parallax Views, please, 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 please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Believe it or not, even with a few sponsors, this show needs your support to keep it all going. It's not easy doing alternative media, and especially with the number of shows I seek to produce for you, the listener. So please, again, consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com 
slash parallax views. You can find all the tiers there. There's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier. And there's also a $10 tier and above perk that gets you a producer's credit shout out. So producer's credit shout outs to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, and Fabian. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, well, join those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above of my Patreon page at, once again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One last time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Have been a little behind on releasing bonus content this month, but rest assured in the next few days, you'll be getting some holiday treats on the Patreon page. And of course, on the main feed, I may be releasing a Christmas show. We shall see. Uh, can't promise anything. The holidays are hectic, but you're definitely going to see some stuff up on the Patreon page in the next few days. And also, of course, on the main feed at Podbean. So, with all that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problem, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.